0: Hey guys, we're getting close to wrapping up season two of Hungry for Wisdom. I hope you guys are loving the show. I am certainly loving you guys. Thank you so much for all the feedback. One thing that you could do to help the show out a lot and the mission in Latin America with the World Hope Bible Institute is to leave us a rating if you haven't already well, on whatever podcast platform you are uh, streaming this, then go ahead and leave us a rating five stars if you think we earned it and share this because as the audience grows a little bit, what that does is it supports the uh, mission through the monetization process and all that kind of stuff. That money goes to to the, uh, the mission in the World Hope Bible Institute that I oversee in, uh, in Latin America. So give us a rating, five stars if you think we earned it, share it, and uh, other than that, listen up. On today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom, an old man smacks us and says, calm down, boy, I've seen worse than this. You'll get to hear a couple guys that know darn near nothing talk about the point of darn near everything. And sometimes being a disciple looks a lot like moonwalking in a gunfight. It's episode 21. Turn it up! Welcome to Hungry for Wisdom. This is the podcast for people who want to know what God knows. He hasn't told us everything, but man, he has told us a lot. I'm Dustin, pastor of Grace and Truth. If you want to know what God knows, let's dig in. And episode 20, what did I say this is? 21? I don't know. It's tricky, man. We did a uh, we we did episode nineteen A and B, so it threw off my whole count. I'm not a math guy. So uh, today's episode, whatever the number is, twenty one, there we go, uh, is dedicated to persecuted Christians. I just always I always want to keep this in front of you guys. You know, pray for these dudes. God is really really active and doing all kinds of cool and and some gritty stuff in the middle of persecution and and all that injustice and the the the, the pressure. And the downsides of things not being the way that they're supposed to be in this world. God's doing a lot, but God's actions so often come as a response to prayer. So that's on that's on us. We get to participate. We get to help, and we want to be praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters here and all over the world. Uh, you know, think about it this way: Christ is behind the wheel. You know, He knows exactly where He's taking this thing. He's He's sovereign over everything. But while He's driving, He has decided that He wants the tank filled with. Our prayers. So pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. And uh, until we get to do that together in person, you guys got to settle for my digital presence. Whoops, that was the wrong ah buttons. You guys got to settle for this very unskilled, unpolished um, discipleship mechanism we call a podcast. Let's look at Proverbs. Here we go, dude. That was an intense lack of dexterity I just displayed there. You got big, colorful buttons here. You'd think I'd be able to avoid them, but I can't. Okay, there we go. Alright, so today's dose of wisdom from Proverbs chapter three, verses twenty five and twenty-six goes like this do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For Yahweh will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Alright, so here's a question. What is it about wisdom that is mutually exclusive to freaking out? Like you can't have these two things in the same spot, right? It's like a it's a sign of wisdom to be steady and in a crisis or under pressure. So why is that? So what's the connection between wisdom and chill? And there's an old World War I movie called All Quiet on the Western Front. Depressing as all get out. I wouldn't watch it. Actually, it was a, it was a book first, but I only ever saw the movie. And it's uh, it's basically, I mean, it's about the German soldiers in World War I. And there's a bunch of um, legendary scenes in there. But there's this one where the the soldiers are training they're you know boot camp or whatever you want to call it uh i don't know what they called it in their in their time we would call it something like boot camp or basic and so they're in their training before they ship off to go to war and the drill instructor he was a hard man he was brutal right he was the guy who knew how to turn young men into killing machines he taught him how to run into gunfire he taught him how to be okay taking another man's life how to you know drag your dismembered friend to a medic even knowing he's not going to live and all that kind of stuff they had to learn that from this guy and so they graduated they went off to war and at one point they're in trench warfare they're charging across the no man's land to the other trench and they see this guy who's cowering behind a, a dirt pile and he's got his face buried in the mud and he's hiding and so they'd been trained by this drill instructor to to not tolerate that kind of thing so they go over to the soldier who's who's hiding He's he's, checked out of the battle. They grab him by the shoulder and they flip him over and they're going to yell at him and drag him into the fight. And so they go over, they grab him, his, uh, his shoulder, they flip him over, and it turns out it's the drill sergeant. He got called up, he got shipped out, and despite all of his knowledge of Warcraft and his ability to teach and explain the techniques of soldiering, you know, he got there and he realized, these dudes are shooting back. And they're shooting back at me. And so right there, everyone lost respect for him. Which is interesting because... He still knew all the same stuff. He had the same information in his head. It didn't change that. It didn't change his ability to train people. He still had that. But he was no longer like respected. He was no longer the go-to guy that could raise up the next generation of warriors. Why not? Well, because his knowledge did not convert to wisdom. And they knew that when they saw him freak out under pressure. So how come when he freaked out, nobody trusted him anymore? What's the connection between wisdom and steadiness? We don't think about it much, at least I, I never have. But it's it's pretty universal that this is how we see things. Two thousand years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote in Titus two, verse two. He said, "Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in the faith, in uh, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance." So you're saying, "All right, older men in the church, we need you to be the stabilizing force. The young men ain't going to do it. They're bouncing all over the place, starting podcasts and going on mission trips and doing whatever. We need that to come from the older men." Right? It's a messy world and we need you guys to cut us a line through it. when old men are the, um, the ones that are freaking out about like the economy or whatever, it's discouraging. You know younger guys look at them and we're like, oh, come on, man,, like, oh, but the dollar is crashing and we're on the brink of civil war, yet yeah, we know. Like you don't need to tell us that. Tell us how to follow Christ, how to take care of our families. You know there's, there's like an expectation that guys that have accrued some wisdom, know how to take a breath under pressure, how not to lose their mind. We saw this during COVID, right? Society was like unraveling in a lot of ways. We didn't know if it was ever going to get put back together. Questions still open, maybe. And it, uh, it became clear that some of our political leaders were like fueling the chaos on purpose because they liked the power grab. And so that was discouraging, a little scary, you know? And so we were watching a tragic series of events and there were some people who were watching, making moves, collecting information, considering their words before they spoke and then there were other people who were you know grabbing fistfuls of their own hair and running around looking for their shoes so that they could run away from whatever was chasing them and the this some of those people it was disappointing to see who they were right i lost a lot of respect for some of the sages in our society because though they were book smart they show, they showed a lack of wisdom so solomon here is guiding us to a different path than that a path of Wisdom where fear doesn't reign supreme in our decision-making. He told us already in Proverbs, wisdom comes from being in right relationship with God, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Collecting knowledge and using it in the way that God designed for it to be used. We've seen in 1 Corinthians 1 that Christ is the wisdom of God to us. So you follow Christ, you have access to whatever God wants you to know to take on whatever he's entrusting for you to fight, or whatever battle he's entrusting you to fight. Come rain or come shine, you will have what you need if you follow Christ. It's a promise. It's not just a proverb, not just a principle. It is actually also elsewhere a promise. So you think about what Jesus said in the farewell discourse, right? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit will bring to you remembrance everything that I have said. All of this stuff. We got promises. So yeah, wickedness is going to show up. Sudden fear is a thing. And Solomon isn't saying don't experience fear. He's not saying pretend not to be afraid. Sometimes fear is nothing more than a rational response to a set of facts, right? And to not feel a little bit of fear would be to either be asleep or delusional or something. Fear is like a, it's a survival mechanism because it moves you to life-saving action. But Solomon is saying here, when you feel that fear, don't lose your cool. Understand that God is doing something and there is something that he wants you to do. So in verse 26, he says, he will keep your foot from being caught. He's saying, look, when you feel afraid, follow God. Put one foot in front of the other, get to work, and it's going to work. Right now, we have a lot of economic fears, right? And rightly so. Men should be thinking about how we're going to put food on the table when when the prices continue to skyrocket and global supply chains aren't dependable fast and cheap anymore. I mean, you're supposed to think about these things. And that little tinge that you feel in your gut, that's going to lead you to think about these things seriously, which we should. So fear is a life-saving mechanism in some ways. But We're going to think with wisdom, with the knowledge that God has a job for us to do, and it's going to work. So look, when God starts freaking out, you can start freaking out. That's my rule, okay? When God freaks out, you can too. Until then, the Lord is your confidence. Approach scary stuff. Approach it with some confidence. God got there before you did. He will lead you on the same path by which he made the world, the path of wisdom. So as you read that over and over and over again in the times in which we live, be encouraged, be instructed, and uh, where we're not doing that, hey, repent. We're Christians, man. We get to turn around and go the other direction because the gospel is a very real thing. Here to talk about the gospel, I brought in my buddy. By the way, brand new buddy, uh, Chris Routon. Am hey, I saying hey, that
1: right? you saying that right, yeah. Yeah,
0: I don't even know your last name because we're such new
1: friends. I'm not even sure how to say it, to be honest. So it's okay. <laughs> Still figuring <laughs> it out. or outing. Yeah, improvising. That's cool. Whichever.
0: So we just met kind of... Um, I mean I basically just met you over lunch. Yeah. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah, that was Costa Vita. Costa nice Vita. recommendation by the yeah, way. Yeah, it was a good spot. Yeah, so the story here is we have we're, we're connected by a mutual disciple. You yep. discipled a guy that I've kind of been able to disciple a little bit here and there from a distance uh, cuz he was living somewhere else. And so then we got introduced and it was like, hey, cool, let's get together. And I was like, hey, you know how to make disciples. Let's go talk <laughs> on a podcast about how to do this. So anyway, I'm, I'm really interested to kind of cracking into what's in your brain because I have no idea what's in there. But I've seen the results of it with uh-huh. this guy that we both know and his, his wife, his family. And so I, I just like I, I start out from a position of really appreciating you and your discipleship ministry and investment in in the kingdom of God and all that. So mad respect. dude. just wanted you to hear that.
1: Yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah.
0: And now it's on the internet. So it's permanent. Can't take it back. And if you say something in this episode that makes me lose all respect for you, I cannot go back and erase what I just said.
1: Yeah. You have to like skip a week on the podcast. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. The pressure is on, but yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about what you do. You've got a very, um, a very specific, a very interesting ministry that not a lot of people, uh, know about or have, I mean, I guess a lot of people know about it, but not a lot of people do the kind of stuff that you do. So what do you do? Yeah.
1: Yeah, the kind of some of the basis of of what we do is really asking a question about what do we as Christians need to do to start churches and get the gospel to the next generation, and really out of that heart, kind of that that sort of heart has birthed a church that I get to pastor, that also plants churches, and we primarily focus on planting churches on college campuses. A little little parable for you. Give a little parable. So there were three different Christians. And this is not a parable of Jesus, by the way, it's like a made up parable. A parable of Chris, a parable of Chris, yeah. you could say <laughs> um, there are three different Christians and each one of them was given a, a small candle with a short wick, a short wick on the candle. And the first Christian was told, hey, take this and make as much impact for the gospel and the kingdom as you can. And so the first Christian says, well, great, since I've been given a small candle with a short wick, I'm going to find the coldest place that I can. And I'm going to bring the warmth of Christ to that place. So they do. And the second Christian goes, I've been given a small candle with short wick. I'm going to find the darkest place that I can, and I'm going to bring the light of Christ to that place. And so they do. The third Christian says, I've been given a small candle with a short wick. I'm going to find a candle factory (laughs) and I'm going to see if I can ignite candles that are maybe bigger than mine and have longer wicks than mine, and do it for the glory of God. So, uh, That's, you know, just kind of a kind of a picture. We think that the university campus is a candle factory. Okay. And in this sort of context, you find people who are on average, the the soil of their heart is softer than it will ever be in their life on average. Uh, that when you're in that life stage, 18 to 24, a lot of moving parts. You're figuring out what adulthood looks like. You're out of the umbrella of your parents for the first time. You're wondering if all the stuff you've heard about God, about pro-God or anti-God is actually true. Uh, you're having to test, new friend groups. You're thinking about marriage and career. All of the big life decisions are right in front of you. And that can be incredibly weighty. It drives a lot of people to rock bottom moments in their life. And what we find is that, uh, that the gospel, is is an incredible solution for those rock bottom moments, yeah. and uh, that people are really receptive in this season of life. So we start churches on college campuses um, for college students primarily, primarily, not exclusively, primarily. And uh, as we do it, we watch people grow in their knowledge of Christ, grow in their affection of Him, and uh, and actually help them to start to make disciples with their life so that once they graduate, they have the entire world in front of them and they have a gospel worldview to be able to say, maybe what God has called me to do is this thing over here, this thing over here but whatever I do and wherever I do it, I will be able to do it for the glory of God because I've kind of come down this, this saving knowledge. Many of the heroes of the faith came to saving knowledge of Christ somewhere in this time period of their life, young adulthood um, and so we've kind of seen that that's possible there's some really cool things about the university campus that makes it uh, just in a really great ground for disciple making, great environment for disciple making. Love to you know kind of share some more of those things. Yeah, with. yeah. So your church is called what? Called Resonate Church. Yeah, we started in two thousand and seven in Pullman, Washington at WSU. Today we are on um seventeen university campuses all across the West. Uh, the newest of which is about to get launched to Fort Collins, Colorado. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, What's that? What's that university down there? Um, Colorado State. Okay. Colorado State University. Yeah, cool. So pretty much, you know, the vision is uh, you can kind of take someone from your youth group or take, uh, you know, a a family member or a friend of yours who is getting ready to go to college. You can put a map of the U.S. on the wall and take a dart and just throw it at the wall. (laughs) And uh, if it hits a major university campus, we want to be able to have some sort of influence towards that so that there would be a, a church and disciple makers on that campus so that when that person goes to college, they're not doing it by themselves. If people to help them to guide them to really point their eyes towards Christ. Yeah,
0: the US or Canada apparently cuz you guys our boy Josh was up there starting one in Lethbridge and Correct. then so, <laughs> poor guy. He
1: moves up there and then the whole world shuts down mid for COVID. Pandemic, mid oh, pandemic. Man. Bless his heart. It was yeah. it was mid pandemic when they moved. Oh really? Yep, and it was okay. uh you know it was um yeah canada had some different our boy is crazy, I, crazy love yeah, I love it yeah he took some it. risks we love him for it josh Eckberg, wife katie shout out love you
0: guys man daughter eden beautiful she's got those cheeks man i just oh want to like God, g- she's z- so cute. Yeah. yeah she's, what, she's so like cute. God, she must be about a year and a half now huh? yeah oh, oh, walking talking ruling the world at this yep. point to be yep. <laughs> starting to get a little bit of attitude i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> that's yep. how they do it yeah that's great okay so 17 so far you're, you're about to launch number 17 about to launch 17 cool good good all right so then the 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 trick then in any ministry context is that there are context-specific factors, Absolutely. right, which yep. makes it really hard to get uh, kind of um, blueprints for what you ought to be doing. Right. Because so every generation, we're, we're two thousand years into Christianity now, and every generation has to meet the same old challenges that are in that were in the first century church. Which is why the Bible can guide us through all of this stuff, and it's never going to run out of juice. It's never going to run out of solutions to our problems. Amen. And yet, at the same time, every generation has to meet challenges that are completely new. Totally new. Right? Yep. And in so you and I are doing ministry in the same generation, but in totally different contexts. Yep. You only live a couple hours away, yep. but your context your context is like maybe like 0%, maybe 1% the same as mine. We got the we speak the same language. Other than that, it's totally different. Uh-huh. So what what kind of stuff are you dealing with on the college campus as far as making disciples that that what, what we might call a normal ministry context like mine, typical you know local church what what kind of stuff are you seeing that i may not even think about being
1: something that that uh, i would ever have to deal with in my ministry yeah i'll i'll give you one that works in the positive and then one that works uh in the negative how yeah, yeah. about that so here's in the positive uh, as a person's coming into college they never have more time on their hands ever than the four years that they're in college i mean uh maybe most, we should make it a little more academically challenging maybe yeah <laughs> i mean most people are going to class for you know t- three hours a day, four hours a day. Sometimes some people don't have classes on Fridays. I mean, you really find yourself having total freedom and you're just in this like sponge sort of, which uh,
0: makes sense. I mean, to go to college, you basically got to get into the mindset where it's like, all right, I need to be ready to take in new information yep. and interact with new ideas. That's a, that's a great way to, to, I mean, that's a, that's a great position to be in or to, to watch somebody be in when you're trying to share the gospel with them.
1: It is, it is. And most people know, I mean, institutions know this. Uh, universities know this. I mean, so that's where, uh, you know, most most uh, new thought that's being adopted by culture has some sort of genesis on the college campus, mm-hmm. on the university campus. Profe- university professors, you know, leaders on campus. Those people tend to then leave the university campus and work out legislature. They yeah. tend to go start companies. Do you think that's because of? the university campus in
0: general, or do you think that's, or I mean, like specifically, or do you think that just generally it's, it's that phase of life where even, you know, 500 years ago, when you were on your, when you were on the farm, in late adolescence and early twenties, you were still that open and curious and stuff. I mean, is that biological or is that contextual? Do you
1: think? I think it's, I think, well, it's a little bit of both. Uh, You know, so scientists would say that um, at 18, your brain is not finished developing. Certainly for young men, right? They finish the development process a little later. So you're still in that formation process. You're not dry cement, still, still wet cement. And then you're also, I mean, you really are on your own for the very first time. So there is the ability to kind of reform and be reborn into whatever new ideology that the university sets in front of you which is a little bit you know it's it's a little bit scary
0: well yeah and you, a, a lot of the the hand-wringing that goes on over our cultural philosophies is a, about the academy right it's Absolutely. like oh man our universities are ruining our kids and uh, there's a lot to that right Absolutely. i mean that's how secularism got here for, and, and uh, theological liberalism and all of that from the late
1: 1800s in germany that's how it got here was through the university campus right 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 and and especially in the west especially in america um, you find um, there is kind of a bar to make it into university. You have to have a certain level of intelligence. Most people have, a, have to have a certain level of money to mm-hmm. get there. And so you do find that a certain type of person gravitates towards the university. So to answer your question a little bit earlier, is that, uh, is that context? I think it is a little bit of context okay. that people would kind of spend their time here and then go elsewhere afterwards. I mean, these Fortune 500 CEOs, politicians, lawyers, doctors, I mean, we're all finding them they have to spend some amount of time in this place. Right. So it is a little bit of the way that the economy has worked itself out. Sure. Um, that people have to spend some, some time here, but it's an incredible opportunity for the gospel in the late chapters of acts. You see, Paul kind of has this strategy towards port cities, mm-hmm. right? these places where people will come from all over the world, spend a little bit of time there, do some business and then leave back to the end. And their later.
0: ideas are mixing their languages are, are you know, kind of knocking the rough edges off of each other and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And Which, by the way, that was, uh, that was Pentecost too, right? You right. could be from all over the place in one spot
1: for a common purpose, bam, the gospel explodes. Right, yeah. And then when they leave from that place, yeah, they, they go take it yep. to wherever their- Ethiopia or whatever. Wherever their home is. And the university can be like that as well. We've seen we've seen that, um, that trend, which is biblical, right? Or at least it's a strategy that Paul kind of piggybacked piggybacked on that we can actually actually, um, see that happening in university campuses as well today. So that's on the positive side. So the positive
0: side is they are maximally receptive and there's dangers associated with it, but it's a net asset you would say for your strategy. Totally. Okay. Totally.
1: Yeah. On the negatives. I mean, I do think there are negatives as well. Um, reasons why, uh, you know, in some places this sort of ministry model works really well and other places it doesn't work so well. Uh, one of them really is kind of herd mentality. Hmm. And so in order for, uh, if you Done much reading or studying? Kind of the next generation. Um, this idea of herd mentality is is really kind of critical and key to the way that people see themselves now, uh, and the ability to differentiate from the rest of the herd. If the herd is not doing something, uh, you know that's that's godly. Right. The ability to differentiate actually puts your identity at risk, and it always has, you know. But in uh, in American history, at least, maybe up until like the '60s, it always was almost synonymous that Christianity and American uh, Americanism kind of went hand in hand. We don't see that anymore, especially not in the next generation. So when you have a person that is, you know, on the cusp of making Jesus Lord in their life, specifically in the university setting, it's going to cost them a lot. It's going to cost them a lot to verbalize that decision. It's going to cost them a lot to actually start making that decision. Uh, and living it out yeah and, and on the
0: macro it's like okay cool that's normal christianity right right back to the first century there we are you look at the persecuted christians that i shouted out at the beginning of the episode and it's like okay this is normal but it doesn't feel normal to the individual right
1: right it's, it's the, the cost is the same every time it's scary and their parents don't understand that uh, because their parents came from a generation where that wasn't necessarily the case their grandparents don't understand that so it, it almost is that this next generation is moving into a season of christianity in america that's never been Seen before, never been charted before. If I don't know if you've ever seen um, that Christ- Christianity kind of has cycles around it, kind of lost, and then it moves towards uh, culture moves towards being reached, and then they move towards being um, uh, Christianized or Christendom, and then they move towards post Christendom, and at that point, uh, society rejects everything. That's Christian, and you find yourself just a few generations later back into a lost culture,
0: right? And we're kind of seeing that now in a lot of countries in Europe. I mean, like like France. Is, in our ministry in the World Hope Bible Institute, uh, France, we we essentially talk about it. It's not like an official designation, but we talk about it like it's an
1: unreached people group right. because right. the percentage wise, it is. Which there's cathedrals. Yep, but they're still unreached. Yep. So it, yeah, it, it kind of boggles the mind. In America, you know, we are founded in God. We trust. Like we are founded in this sort of essence of like what it meant to be American was what it meant to be Christian up until the mid nineteenth mid nineteen hundreds, where now we're seeing this trend. Uh, towards post christendom Mm -hmm. and uh and post christianity and so the some of the church models of the past you know like early Mm -hmm. early church models may be finding themselves having a lot of trouble reaching people today because the way that people are thinking today is different than they've thought before yeah and
0: reaching people may not necessarily mean gathering a crowd because population being what it is you can you know you can go to you can go to a big city and Pretty much, you can gather a crowd with whatever you got, yeah. right? But if we're talking about actually making disciples and accomplishing the Great Commission, it's different. It, yeah, it can be harder now. Yeah, it is. It
1: is. So that's what I would say. On, on the positive side, people are open; they're receptive. Um, you know, this is the time period where people are making choices for the rest of their lives. And on the other side, um, they, they have to differentiate from mm-hmm. the rest of the herd and the rest of the generation, which is yeah. which is which is pretty scary.
0: And it seems to me that it, it could be a both positive and a negative for you guys that you only get a few years me get a few years with each disciple now that's great in terms of multiplication that's great in terms of the great commission like you're sending people out you you guys get to launch missionaries probably a hundred times as frequently as i do if uh you know if they're if they pay attention to what you're saying in the right. few years,
1: you got them. Right. But man, you only get a few years. We only get a few years, which once again, double-edged sword. Yep. On one side, you go, man, this sort of thing might take 10 years, 15 years of following Christ to work out a deeply embedded uh, wound or a deeply embedded worldview or a value that was you know, generational even to that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on, on the flip side, because we only have four years, I think we recognize some urgency in that. We go. We we had no time to waste. Yep. We have to maximize every single minute <laughs> that we have with Jeez, people. What if we could all live like that? Yeah, right? and yeah. that's that's the kind of a question that I was I was actually going to ask you as well. Uh-oh. Was the you know is is there any opportunity for some some faux deadlines? Is it possible to maybe impose some some deadlines mm-hmm. onto people, uh, onto churches, onto ministries that create some sort of necessary urgency inside of them? Life stage really is one of those things that's natural. Yeah. Um, and it drives intention. It really drives intention. Um, but I've wondered, and I wonder if you have thoughts on this, is it possible to kind of superimpose um, your own? Yeah, I think international mission
0: work is probably the front line of that because the the plane takes off on a certain date at a certain time, right? And so we've seen people that feel they feel a call by God to participate in this mission that we've got going on. Dude, I'm not even baptized yet. Yeah. And, and so that, then they come to me and they say, I want to go on the mission trip. I'm like, you're not baptized. And they're like, well, okay, let's, let's do the baptism thing. Let's well, get it going now again. you're into a gospel conversation. Uh-huh. Now you're into equipping and you get to, you know, and, and so you put them under the gun a little bit when people are moving. Oh, dude, we had one situation where, um, oh, I got to be really careful what I say about this. There, there was a guy that, um, was going to be going to jail for a while, right? A good long while. <laughs> and, He should. why I'm laughing. (laughs) laughing. It was like, and he should. We, we met him in this crisis point and he was like, it was that, it was that rock bottom thing, right? And he's like, okay, my, my grandma told me about Jesus or whatever. And so through a series of connections, I get connected with him. And he's Mm -hmm. like, he's right at that spot where he's like, I need to know if God is real. And if so, what does he say about this? So we trained him as a missionary and sent him into prison because it was like, well, yeah, you need to go to prison for a while because of what you did, right? And so then he went and started like, started Bible studies up in prison and whatnot. And so, I mean, you talk about a sense of urgency and a deadline and things like that. Anytime you've got a, a, um, you know, a certain date where this ministry is going to start. And if you're participating, boom. And so yep. you get that all the time when people are moving out or, you know, maybe moving into a different, you, I would guess you probably got to move people through, uh, like into leadership positions relatively quickly, pretty quick, M- more quickly than most churches would be comfortable putting somebody in leadership. It gets us in trouble sometimes. Yeah. I can imagine yeah. it's messy, <laughs> Yeah. by the way, it's, it's messy. Even if you do take time, right? People yeah. are just variables, but yeah, I can imagine you guys see that a lot, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I think plan a Christianity, just basic Christianity of, you know, hey, make disciples in the home and the church and in the rest of the world as you have opportunity. That's that's going to create you're going to have to choose between that and a malaise at some point. These things can't coexist forever.
1: I mean, that makes sense. Probably looks
0: different in every context.
1: No, I, I think you're right. I really do think you're right. In the early church, they had persecution on them. Yeah. So there was always the, always the urgency. I mean, if you read Fox's books, Book of Martyrs, yep. uh, and I saw it on your bookshelf, um, and you read about the history of the church in Rome, the first few, I mean, it was like every single pastor that came in was, was done away with. Mm-hmm. Every, so it was this necessary urgency because the church knew that unless we replicate we're not going to make it into the next generation. Yeah. We have to replicate. And this gospel message is so spectacular that we can't let this die. Like we can't, we, we must, you know, they, they, you can say God had his hand over it the whole time. He, sure. did, he did, he for sure did. Um, but these were very real urgent thoughts. These people were having. Very much, yeah. yeah. Our pastor is not going to live for more than 10 years. What do we do? And imagine taking the pastorate in, in the church in Rome. Yeah. <laughs> You're
0: like, okay. We want you to be our pastor. Oh, bro, I thought we were friends. Yeah, well, you Yeah.
1: Yeah, why are you saying that at this point? Yeah, yeah.
0: so th- as far as the next generation goes, when I say the next generation, I mean, we're you and me, we're in our, what, mid-30s? You're in your early 30s. Um, so we say next generation, we mean of disciples. So let's say right. let's say college age down. And, yeah. You know, college age down to our children. You yep. and me. Which,
1: that, you want a mind-blowing statistic, so 18-year-old college student, today's 2022, so they were born in 2004. Yeah. So college student today born in 2004 isn't that wild see that it hit me a couple of years ago when
0: i realized that these I, w- I was talking to um a youth group and i got invited to do a thing out there and i realized none of these kids ever went through an airport before the tsa no nope. they, they didn't know a
1: pre nine eleven world. No, nope. yeah well, yeah try explaining like good music try try, <laughs> try try like try explaining what was cool when like you know it's it's challenging yeah these are called
0: parachute pants <laughs> guys. And we even thought they were goofy. Well, they're coming back in though. Well, by the way, I have some, because when I went to India, cool. I was like, that's what that means. You're cool. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like on the cutting edge of stuff. I'm on the, the the fashion Vanguard, but like, they're still doing the parachute pant thing in India. Then I went there and I'm like, these are so comfortable and the air moves right through them on a hot day. Like, uh-huh. why are we not doing this? So I'm bringing back two things, man. I'm bringing back the parachute pants Yeah, and I'm bringing back, well, they call them harem pants over there, but that's bad. We don't like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but if you want to find some online, you got to look, go look for harem pants and I'm bringing back the fanny pack, at least airports. I have one too.
1: You know, I don't care. It's so practical.
0: Yeah. Come at me, bro. Like you take it off, you throw it through the scanner. You don't need to unload your pockets and whatever. So those things need to come back. And here I stand. I can do no (laughs) other. If you guys, if you get nothing else out of this podcast, parachute pants and fanny Fanny pants. But when it comes to the younger generations, we've been, we've been trying to figure out like, what does it mean to actually reach them? Because it almost seems like the definition of reach is different than, or it, it looks different than it always has
1: before. Can you explain that a little more?
0: Yeah. And and I really want to get your thoughts on this because you're, you're swimming in the soup all the time. So we were sitting around in our pastor's meeting talking about, we were at the the big picture stuff, right? Where are we going five years out, 10 years out? And what do we need to be doing now to get there? Do we have any indication of what God might be doing? And we realized this problem that with people basically 24 and under, we kind of put the number there. It was somewhat artificial, but it was based on our experience. Um, 24 and under, we can quote, lead them to Christ No problem. Right. But they don't stick with it. They don't. And and they don't stick with it, not just over the long haul. They don't stick with it for a week. But at their profession of faith, when we explain the gospel to them, we have them repeat it back to us in their words. So we know what's going through their head Mm -hmm. and they grab onto it with everything they got. And they're Mm -hmm. they're repenting with tears and they're you know calling people and saying, hey, we can't you know, you can't be my dealer anymore. I'm following Jesus Mm -hmm. now. And they make those moves. They wake up the next day with a totally different set of convictions and they don't show up for their baptism. So, okay, you gave me a stat. Here's one for you. We led 12 people to Christ. And when I say led them to Christ, these were not legit conversions. I mean, it looked in the moment like they were getting saved. We walked away and got to say, I led somebody to Christ today. And then they didn't show up for their baptism all in that age bracket. Right. So it's like in a, in a generation where they are told that they can choose their gender day to day and they can choose that you can literally change your biological sex if it makes you more comfortable. there There is no such thing as conviction anymore. So what does it mean to, like, how, how does it look to communicate the gospel to them, to call them to a life of following Christ and instill any level of buy-in on the front end when you can wake up the next day with a whole different set of convictions and feel just as just as firmly in those convictions as you did in the ones that you adopted yesterday and are now setting down. Right. So wh-
1: how do you reach these guys? Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, we know this as Christians, but there must be a... Standard of conviction that's outside of the individual. Right. right? So. Objective truth is is where we place that. Uh, Subjective truth is is really what culture is swimming in right now. So everybody makes their own truth. Everybody gets to do, you know, whatever they see fit. And logic, I mean, the logical end of that is pretty, it's it's pretty, yeah, it's wild. Yeah. I mean, it, it does not make logical sense. And it's bloody too,
0: because as soon as, as soon as my truth conflicts with yours, you know, clash and, and, you know, might makes right. And I mean, you get with, you get to that. Point within the first three minutes of thinking about this subject right. and yet
1: so and, and that it, that really supreme. is sometimes that's a basis for where we start conversations is uh is do you believe that there is a universal truth is there an objective truth and most people have not even heard that that terminology before. Right? Oh, man. So, so I mean, it's like before you can have so you know, like in the 19, in the nineteen fifties, Doctor. Bill Bright taught us the four spiritual laws, and it mm-hmm. starts with uh, there is a God, or there is a God, and He loves you. He cares very much about your life, something yeah. like that. Is um, it the He loves you? and has a wonderful plan yeah, for your life. Exactly, yeah. He loves you and has a wonderful plan, wonderful plan for your life. And uh, the idea is that you're sharing the gospel with a person that already has an understanding of an objective God, mm-hmm. and so all you have to do is kind of tack on. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to. Strip away what happened in salvation in that right, time right, right. Generation. No, I get it. different but context now. Though the idea, yeah, now you got to start a little bit farther back. We're not just talking about do you believe that there is a God or that uh, what do you believe about God. We're starting farther back. Like, uh, could a God possibly? exist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and even one step farther back, you know, some of the first converse, some of the first conversations, the first questions are social questions, questions about the role of women in society, questions about the role of gender in the person questions, you know, those sorts of questions, questions about uh, slavery and racial justice, like those, those questions kind of do get forefront. So what what's required there to kind of answer your question is being willing to walk the conversation back to meet them at the genesis of their worldview, which is not where the genesis of your worldview and my worldview started, if we grew up in a home that did believe something about God, uh, we we have to kind of walk that back. And as you walk it back, you realize the process for conversion of the heart is a long process. Mm. You're talking about deconstructing an entire worldview of subjectivity and reconstructing a worldview around holiness, around Christ, around what the gospel has to say. Is it possible
0: to summarize the starting point that you're talking about? Like, you gotta get back to the starting point, the genesis of their worldview. Is it, is it possible? Is it too individual or is it possible to kind of broad brush? Here's what we're seeing when we get back to that point. What's their worldview based on?
1: Um, it, it is based on self. It is, it is based on self. It is, and I think it is based on self actualization. Okay. Self expression and self actualization. Expression. See, that's interesting. I've wondered what to do with this for a while because it's like, like self
0: expression has become a civil right. Oh, yeah. Right? And if you, if you harsh anybody's, self-expression you're even even suggest that maybe it would be appropriate to limit their self-expression in some way that is akin to physical violence right yeah right. so right. Wh- where where did the idolatry of expression come from i mean like i because i i don't and this isn't a generational thing i don't think it's more of just a personal thing like i don't feel the need to have everybody around know what i'm thinking despite what Some people think because of how much I talk, you know. But it's like if if somebody doesn't know my opinion on something, I'm kind of okay with that. Like it actually makes my life a lot easier in group settings. And so, where did that that thing come from? Where it's like I I have to express what I perceive to be myself.
1: Right. Um, I don't know if I have the answer to that, Dustin. I wish I did. I can get
0: really nerdy about it and, and say something that's probably true, but doesn't make any sense. tell, yeah, like, tell me what you well, think. Well, you know, it's it's because when you become your own god, then God must project and emanate
1: Himself for His own glory, and so then I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. Maybe it's probably true. Though. It, 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 well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is something there is something to that. The desire to be seen, the desire to be recognized, the desire to be affirmed. I mean, I think all of those things do have some place in the human heart. Regardless of what time period you've lived in. But I do think, um, yeah, right now those things are being platformed to be forefront issues, primary issues. And, uh, and not just like, Hey, if you get to these in your life, then that's great. Or if you get to these when you're 40 or 50 years old, that's yeah. like, if, if you actualize yourself way down the road, that's okay. That's funny. We front loaded the midlife
0: crisis to late adolescence now. Dude, it's true. Whoa. It's true.
1: It's true. And it's kind of scary.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, instead of, you know, buying a Ferrari or something like that, we, when, you know, when uh, your kids leave the house and you're an empty nester and wondering about the big existential questions. Now it's like we're reassigning ourselves
1: genders and stuff. Yeah. One of those ways that that's um, it's revealed kind of I'm not sure if you've followed like uh, career statistics recently. But um, we're, like right now, there's this big thing called happening uh, ca- happening called the great resignation where people are just turning over their jobs. So I mean, so quickly. Um, and I, I recently read some statistics that said the average person. Uh, from 20 to 30 in their job will work something like six to eight jobs. Like just like turning a decade in a decade. Yeah. Like it's, it's normal for a person to work that many jobs in that 20 to 30 Decade? Shoot, I used to have that many jobs at a time when I was twenty and thirty. <laughs> well, I, I think there's something in there about just the, yeah the desire to self-express. Hey, if this is not getting me where I need to get, then I'm going to go to this other place. And it's not because you're entrepreneurial. It's not because people are going like I have all these ideas to start my own companies or I have all these income streams that I could be making. It really is like hey, maybe this will be where I feel like I'm expressing myself and my value and my giftings. Oh, never mind, that's not going to be it. Maybe this place will do it. No, that's not going to be it. Maybe this place. So, so it's, really, just chasing is, actualization. It, it is it absolutely chasing actualization. And
0: looking for it in your work, yeah,
1: yeah. Man, there's I mean, an open door one, to the
0: gospel right there. Yeah,
1: one place, but I mean, a pretty significant place.
0: Yeah, wow. Yeah. All right. So then, as far as communicating the level of conviction necessary in order to follow Christ, how do how do we, how do you go about communicating that? Like, hey, listen, count the cost. You know,
1: hey, I'm calling you to something here that might get your head chopped off sure. someday. Sure, we we do kind of hack the system a bit. And I'll say that because uh, we want to put loads of Christian community around a person who is making a lordship decision for the first time so that if that community that they were previously connected to starts to reject them. They're not a wanderer on earth with no Christian community and no non-Christian community whatsoever. Right. Right. So a little bit of a hack there. Um, you know, what we find is that as people come to Christ, um, and make Lordship decisions, it's typically not an isolated individual that's doing that. It's typically an individual that's been being pursued by community already. Okay. So kind of a, an interesting thought uh, experiment, uh, is just the idea of, like, can you disciple a person before they actually make a decision that Jesus is Lord of their life? Oh, I think absolutely. You think so? I, th- I think
0: pre-conversion discipleship is one of the best methods of evangelism. Tell me tell me more.
1: Well, I mean, you know, we, we'll have...
0: <laughs> not everybody has agreed with me on this point, by the way. Um, I agree with you, by the way. I hear w- what well, on what I'm about to say. Okay. So um, there are positions in the church that when people come in and they're like, hey, this thing is really interesting and I'm finding something here that, that I've needed but never seen before, whatever, and they're not regenerate yet i have no problem making them a door greeter you know hey put on this name tag smile at people show them where the kids area is at whatever they're not working alone they're with somebody why do you
1: think people take why do you think people take offense at that
0: um well so i'm going to be speaking for people that i disagree with here so i may not do a good job but i think that generally speaking it's coming from a correct theology that the church is for christians right like you hear this thing like we do church for the lost it's like that's that's an insane thing to say you know it's an ecclesiological uh, non-sequitur but i i think that where it comes from is okay the church is for is for believers therefore if a non-believer is participating in some way that is that constitutes some kind of official capacity then we've compromised the 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 integrity of what we're actually doing here and i i don't i don't think that's true i think that's a false premise Mm. but i understand the concern but i think it's a false premise um now I have far less confident answers as to at what point that tips, right? Would you let them run your sound booth? Well, now they're in, in control of the content that's getting <laughs> yeah, put out.
1: It gets a little dicey. Yeah, they're
0: not making the decisions, but they're the ones that the, they're the one at the nexus sure. there. Would you let them teach? Absolutely not, right? So where are those lines? And I think a lot of that is going to be context specific. But yeah, in in general, I think pre-conversion discipleship However that has to look, if that's like, hey, I'm going to go help an old lady uh, build a ramp out in front of her house because she just got put in a wheelchair and Jesus wants me to take care of her. Right. You're, you know, you're a million miles away from Christ, but you're going to come and help me swing a hammer. Mm-hmm. You know, I am I mean, who wouldn't be for that? Right.
1: Well, it, yeah. And is, is it not logical that there are a, a number of things that kind of create some sort of case of evidence in the human heart to make the lordship decision oh absolutely yeah explain that yeah it would make sense that like there are some things that about god's character that uh, that uh pile on top of themselves in your own head in your own heart that convince you Mm -hmm. right and it's not just one singular personal experience that's actually kind of flaky I mean, that's that can that can fall over pretty quickly, yep. right? But if you have this kind of like massive experience, I mean, what are we doing with our kids if there's no such thing as pre-conversion discipleship? <laughs> like, what what are we doing with yeah, them? That's like, right. There must be some sort of basis that uh, that a non-believer has to have being built inside of their heart to to make a you know some sort of truthful understanding of what they're actually committing to, and uh, and I think one of the ways that we've seen. Um, discipleship and and being reaching people be effective is to not be uh so concerned with the fact that they have to uh that they have to make a decision towards christ you know on, on the first time that we start hanging out with them mm-hmm. but i mean we just recently um two weeks ago we had a gentleman um, profess. Lordship in Christ, like he, Jesus is my Lord. And a year ago today, he was making fun of his roommate who had just made a decision to follow Jesus. And for an entire year, his roommate was following Jesus. He wasn't, but he's continued coming around. And a year later, he makes his decision to follow Christ. And that's that's actually a fairly common kind of timeline. Pretty uh, a fairly common story that uh, that is out there is like it takes time. It takes so time.
0: What would you say are the the ratios in? I mean, you know, 17 different churches on right. on university campuses, but the one that you lead. Sure. What would you say the the ratio is of, of saved people to lost
1: people that show up, let's say, at a typical worship service on a Sunday? Yeah. Oh, I I'd probably say like 90% saved okay. 10%. And then lost. how about in the small groups? So and stuff? small groups small groups are our front door. Okay. Small, for us, somebody comes to a small group before they come to the worship service. So you might have a majority lost people in a small group. But much higher percentage. Okay. I mean, I would say I would say uh 70 30 60 40 okay because like I've always been really hard on the seeker sensitive
0: methodology in general but I think that I'd I'd be and these are methodological questions not primary theological issues right and so I, there, there's some room to kind of step back and reevaluate and I think with the the timeline that you guys are working on with each person with each disciple it makes a little more sense to to do more on the front end to say hey just come and check this thing out man like <laughs> you know it, which yep. is not I'm I'm even uncomfortable saying that a little bit, you know, because I I don't want the church to be an attraction mechanism. I want it to be attractive, right? Sure. I mean, like Titus uh, says, uh, Titus three, I think it is, no, Titus two that we ought to adorn the gospel, mm-hmm. and I get that, but at the same time, like there there are, I guess what I'm getting at is there are methodological things that you guys probably have to do that um, a suit and tie Baptist preacher like much like myself. Um, <laughs> would would probably bristle at a little bit. Well, you ever feel like you have to make a compromise in order for to,
1: to meet the urgency of where you're at? Sometimes and sometimes that compromise looks like launching new things that haven't historically existed so that there's a middle space for non-believers to like get involved in. So our small groups probably operate less like discipleship groups than some uh, some churches might have like discipleship time. Um but I I agree with you. We don't want to we don't want to preach To a non-believing crowd on Sundays. That's not, I mean, that's not our primary target, Um, but we don't feel like it would be compromising to like allow a small group space to be a space where a non-believer would feel comfortable in and actually be the, the primary invite is there. Um, So it it has something to do with, with content. Um, Like I think the content that gets, that gets spoken about um, has something to do with what's how we're reaching people. But additionally, more than content, I think it's contact. I think it is the life of the believer on the life of the non-believer mm-hmm. that puts essence and it puts flesh, it incarnates the message, if you will. So, so much of disagreements about Christianity coming from non-believers are coming from sound bites that they've heard, information that they've heard from somebody far off. Yeah, You get life, life on life close to a Christian and you see a Christian genuinely repenting. Genuinely asking forgiveness, yep. genuinely being transformed, that reconciling is, relationships, I mean, kicking addictions. Li- I'm getting goosebumps as we're talking about yeah. Like, There is nothing like that in the world. There's nothing like watching two Christians uh, hurt each other and then... Ask for forgiveness, reconcile, and move forward in unity. There's nothing like that. Oh, Where man, else yeah. will you get that? And, and I mean, I've, I've seen non-believers witness that interaction and go, that's otherworldly. You're saying
0: conflict in the church has been evangelistic at times.
1: Oh my, yes. <laughs>
0: because of the, because of the Christian response.
1: Cause, yeah, cause it makes no sense.
0: And that, see, that's a great thing for people to hear because the, you and I, we, we swim in this stuff all day long. We get to see a lot of these types of situations and we don't get to talk about it because they're confidential, right? But, I, I can imagine that people oftentimes get the question like, okay, I got enough drama in my life with people in general. Why would I go to a place where I know sometimes they don't get along? You know, people are messy. I'm not going to church. Even if I did follow Jesus, why would I want
1: to do that? That's an answer. Where else will you go? It's that Dallas Willard quote. Uh, you know, you know, the, he's a professor uh, at USC. Uh, effectively, he would have students come up to him and say, "Why do you choose to follow Jesus?" He would respond, "Who else do you think I should follow instead?" Yeah, <laughs> like who else am I gonna like? Where else are you gonna get this? The disciples go, "Where yeah. else will we go?" You have the words of life. So this this sort of idea that the church, you know, built into the relationships, built into the life of Christians living alongside one another in community, that is attractive to a world that is canceling to a world that is shifting. And it ought to be because, you know, we are the body of Christ. Yeah. And and in our
0: best moments and then by the grace of God, sometimes in response to our worst moments, we're showing the character of Christ and yeah. if people can see that in us. Yeah. Hey, praise God, right? Yeah, praise God. Praise All right, God so I want to ask you about this because you you are getting to do something with I think regularity and with integrity, that I'm worried I only talk a good game about, <laughs> right? Like I preach more than I live in this area, so I want to get your, your your perspective on how to go about this, because we would all say that every disciple ought to be a disciple maker, right? But in the the, the tendency in churches, because God set things up in such a way that the word is to be preached and the eyeballs are on the preacher as a matter of necessity when that's going on. And so you can kind of wind up with the one man show. You can kind of wind up with the, the, the sort of um, concert style uh, gathering and whatever. And so those things always happen. But the the problem there, if you're not careful, is that the pastor or the pastors wind up being the disciple makers in the church. And then you've got normal Christians who pray and they read their Bible and stuff like that. But then when you're talking about evangelism and you're talking about life on life discipleship and you're talking about counseling situations, well, that's for the special forces guys, right? We would all say, if we've been reading our Bibles, like the New Testament in particular, no, that's not Christianity. In Christianity, you've got a body of Christ with different people with different functions and nobody's more important than the other. And all of us ought to be making disciples mm-hmm. practically though. How do you avoid it from, how do you avoid the pastors being the bottleneck for that? How do you, how do you, um, activate people to go and make disciples so that their version of discipleship isn't come here. My pastor disciple you want for an hour on Sunday.
1: Right. That's uh, so much behind that. So much. I thought it was a pretty simple question. Really. I was hoping for (laughs) just a one word answer. Okay. I'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you a story. So, um, this summer, my wife and I, my two kids, took a road trip from Pullman to San Diego. That's insane, by the way. Seven, it was insane. First time we'd done it with two kids, so we're like, yeah, maybe it'll go great. Actually, it was pretty great. Isn't your youngest like one? He's one. Yeah. He's one. <laughs> he's one year old. Uh, he actually traveled really well, though. So I we think went, you and me need to do some counseling because you seem a little bit suicidal to me. No, right that, yeah, that was. We needed to get the experience, so we went to San Diego because every summer um, there is a there is a, uh, a discipleship program that we put on in San Diego where we send students down there for the summer to learn how to follow Jesus in community, to learn how to defend their faith, to learn, you know, some of the practical hands-on aspects of following Christ. And they could do it because it's summertime and they they have plenty of time. So we do it. It happens every single summer. We drove down to teach at it uh, I drove, you know, I think it's like 2,300 miles or something to get there. And I was supposed to teach on disciple making. So that was my thing. That's why I went down was to teach, a, uh, you know, a seminar on disciple making. The first thing I opened up was saying, Hey, I drove 2,300 miles to tell you this sentence. <laughs> that was my opener. And like people like stood up in their chair, yeah. you know, I like sat up in their chairs, grabbed their pen. I was Like that's the best opener for anything. Boom. Uh, Makes me and, and get I a longer commute to work. Yeah. But I told him, I told him, uh, God's primary calling on your life is to be a disciple maker. That's what I told him. And at face value, there's a whole lot of objectives to, uh, objections to that statement. I'm not talking about the essence. I'm not talking about identity. I'm not saying who he's creating you to be as a human It found in him is somebody who does something. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying what he's primarily uh, attempting to get us to see in our lives is that our place in human history is to take the torch of the gospel from the generation that came before us to internalize that and to pass the torch to the next generation. And that, that is the primary calling of, of what we, what we get to accomplish as Christians outside of what's happening in our own heart. Right. And that's hard. That's hard to wrap your mind around. So what I mean by that is like, you can do a number of incredible things in your life. You can, you can accomplish great stuff. You can launch companies. I mean, you can, you can write some killer content. And 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 if at the end of your life you have not taken that torch of the gospel from the generation before you and helped to pass it in a practical way to that next generation, uh, you you've actually lost. You you've, you've not lived into what all like the fullness of what God might be calling you to. And and on the flip side, if you if you don't do any meaningful work that transcends your lifetime like if you don't launch a company or if, if you don't you know write the book that you thought you were going to write but you have relationships that you've invested in and you've taught people to follow jesus taught him to obey his commands as is spelled out in matthew 28 then you've won even if, if you don't have the life um that you know that that looks so spectacular i think it was the moravians that would say make disciples die and be forgotten yep Make disciples die and be forgotten. I'm like, that sounds like a good life to
0: me. Well, yeah, that's Second Timothy 2, too, right? So Paul says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, so there's two generations, Paul to Timothy, right? What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, generation three, who will be able to teach others also Uh generation four. Now this fourth generation, they probably are never gonna meet Paul. And Paul's dead and
1: gone. Never. But here we are, right? right? So so how do we get people to believe that? I think it starts with like me believing that there's a primary calling on every single person in my congregation to make disciples.
0: Yeah. And and I want to, I want to be specific about the wording here. I, and I may have said this, how do we get people to do that? What I mean by that is not how do we manipulate them into certain actions. Right. right. And you know this, but right. I'm, I'm just specifying for everybody else that like, how do we give people permission to go and do something that sure. they didn't think they could do or was their job
1: or whatever. Right. I want to activate them. Totally. Right? Yeah. And I'll, I'll just, you know, caveat my previous statement. This is primary calling. Uh, this is not the only calling i'm not saying that's the only calling yeah, yeah. i'm just saying that this there, there is something for every single christian in this to make disciples of other people mm-hmm. and that's got to be somewhere in our life plan it's got to be somewhere you know in our in our in our bucket list is that this is what we get to invest our lives into into other people and and i think it's it does start with me believing that 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 great commission that jesus gave to the 12 applies to believers across the timeline of history and across the globe. And that I, I might actually not be doing what the Lord's called me to do as a pastor. If I'm not helping that to happen in the Mm -hmm. lives of every single person, by the culture that we create, by the systems that we implement, by the training that we give, by the accountability that we, that we have with people in community. So I think all of those things kind of do factor into it. Um, you know, in in the Old Testament, you, you see this kind of really interesting thing happen in Genesis eleven, where um, where the Lord scatters the nations. The nations get scattered, right? Um, building the tower, uh, yeah, <laughs> Come look at our accomplishment. Yep. Yeah. And he goes, no, no, not going to reach the, not going to reach heaven. Scatters different languages, different tribes, different tongues, right? So Genesis eleven. You flip to the end of the book. You yep. get Re- Revelation seven. What do you see? The nations gathered. Every tribe. Every, every tongue, tribe. Every it. tongue. Every nation. So. The, the a big question that as a church we should ask is what happens in the middle there how how does god get us from genesis 11 to revelation 7 x2 and it, yeah it seems like throughout that the narrative of the bible throughout history the lord really is helping his people to pass along in a relational way how to follow him right the nation of Israel is learning how to entrust these things to their kids how to follow you know how how their families as for me and my household we will serve the Lord mm-hmm. right and and this is this is primary it's not that God was only working through the nation of Israel but the, the primary narrative that's followed there in the Old Testament is that nation and what you find is that you know in the Old Testament kind of a uh, 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 the, the way by which I guess disciple making would happen would primarily be through kids and families, discipling kids and families Mm -hmm. surrounded by the protection and the preservation of the Lord. They, they flourish in that new Testament. Jesus comes and he starts calling his people to look outside of the nation of Israel. He starts calling his people to care for Gentiles. He starts interacting with people that, uh, that in a relational way that maybe rabbis would not have had that same sort of interaction with. Right. So the new Testament, um, some of that calling is that the protection and the preservation of the Lord, uh, it looks like calling his people to make disciples of all nations, not just within the nuclear family. So in the Old Testament, you know, it was disciple your kids. The New Testament is disciple your kids and disciple other people's kids. Teach other people's kids how to follow the Lord as well. And And we now don't have the luxury of not taking responsibility for all the nations. Yeah the the good samaritan story is a you know great example of that. So I think that sort of idea that um is very accepted within within Christian circles within the church that you must disciple your children. We get that, we understand that. Um moving We understand it more than we do it. More but, than, well, yeah. But at yeah. least there's some sort of you feel responsibility for it. Yeah. Um, and I really do think the model of Christ is like look we also have to look outside the family. We have to look for the kid next door. We got to ask like I have to take responsibility. I can't go on vacation to the nations without caring about their salvation anymore like i have to now care about what's happening there
0: so as i want to bring something up for the sake of you know the for the sake of the people listening who are like yeah no i agree chris i agree dustin i need to go and and make disciples and it's a new concept to them i want to prepare them for some stuff right because you got to count the cost on this one too not just in following christ you know, or uh, not just in, as you say, making a Lordship decision for Christ, but also in the practical day to day following of him, there's a cost to it. And one of the things that happens is that it's, um, people get surprised that it's really, really discouraging. You know, I think it was Jared Wilson. He said, discipleship is incredibly inefficient, (laughs) you know, like in the, in the business world, if we took the metrics of how many people we invest in versus how many people we get a, what you might say, a return from how many people like grab it and make it their own. It's the, the numbers are not good. Right. Right. So it, It's we're called to do something that by the numbers isn't going to work most of the time. And we just got to be okay with that. So
1: Mm. what, how do you handle discouragement in disciple making? The first thing that came to my mind was the parable of the sower where Jesus describes four different fields or, you know, four different terrains that the seed can land on. Right. And, you know, I don't think that he's actually talking about real ratios. I don't think he's talking about like one out of four will yeah. decide, like will follow. But I do think there is something to be said that there's more bad field. There's more bad soil than there is good soil. But when you find the good soil, it's 30 fold, 50 fold, 100 fold. You live so, for that one, right? Yes, yes. So something, something does happen there. I, and I also agree with you that the, the discouragement, um, of making disciples can be incredibly off putting. What, what I've also noticed though is that the most difficult discipleship relationship is the first discipleship relationship to go from zero. I've never made a disciple to I've made a disciple. That is a, that's a huge chasm because it's learning to reorient your life, learning to reorient your time, learning to reorient the way that you think and helping what's the the thoughts that are happening in your head and in your heart translate transition out of your mouth to actually help another person. I, I, and this is not, this is not Bible, but I have a, you know, a hunch that if you can make one disciple, you can make four five, 10, 15, 20, like 50 from 15 to 50 in my mind is way less difficult than zero to one. You so, know what? I've never thought of that. But as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, the first time you do anything, it's so challenging. hundred percent. Everything has to get reworked. So how do we help people make one disciple? I wonder if that is a domino that, you know, yeah. helps people for the you break rest inertia
0: their life. and you can get, you know, accelerate faster than you can start. Well, so then let's, let's define that then. What do you mean when you say make a disciple, right? Cause I mean, you and I are going to have the same answer to this generally, but it, cause all, all Christians should, right? Cause we're getting it from the Bible, but at the same time, it's like, well, whatever. How, how do you individually express that? How do you explain it? What what is what does success look like in making a disciple?
1: What's the target that we're shooting at? Uh, you know, you said we might have similar answers. I, as I've interacted with people, m- no one has the same answer. <laughs> like I think we could all go back to Matthew twenty-eight, right? Sure. Like, teach them, but we all express it differently. We all express sense. it yeah. differently. So uh, there is something about a, a unique discipleship culture in every church where you say this is how grace and this is what a grace and truth disciple should look like. This is how we interpret the calling that God has placed on every individual, but placed through our church uniquely. Um, And so I think different churches have different benchmarks for what discipleship looks like. For some churches, uh, you know, part of the discipleship process might be learning how to preach and learning and learning how to do that uh, and and actually submitting that whole thing unto Christ. So there's competency connected to it, not just character connected to it. Um, For us, I I think we would say like the, the passing along of the awareness of God's story And where the individual has responsibility in God's story is part of that kind of key discipleship relationship. So I'm not doing a great job in short words defining how I would say this person is a disciple or this person is not. Um, There is something inside about the personal adoration of Christ Mm -hmm. and the desire, the longing, the cherishing, the adoring, the treasuring
0: of Christ. So, like in John 4 terms, right? Jesus says, the Father is seeking. Worshippers, right? And if somebody goes from not being a worshipper to being a worshipper, we've made a disciple, right? In some sense,
1: yeah, yes, you yeah? could can, can say that. Okay, you could absolutely say that. I, I, I would also add that I do think the disciple has some sort of orientation to non-disciples as well. Oh, okay. not only does the disciple have a, uh, orientation towards Christ, but they recognize their role in the redemptive story of what God's doing through history. Matthew four nineteen: Follow me, I will make you. Fishers of men. Yeah, good connection. Part of what it feels like to follow Jesus is to be taught to make fishers of men. So you would say, (coughs) excuse me. Wow. So then if I'm hearing you right, you
0: would say, that somebody can be saved and still be inwardly focused and selfish about their faith, but they cannot be living as a disciple while being inwardly oriented completely.
1: I would say, yeah, there, there's incompleteness, okay, in their discipleship process.
0: Yeah, something that weighs on my mind a lot when we're talking about making disciples is Colossians 1, 28 and twenty-nine. Right, for this reason, I labor and strive so that we may present every man mature in Christ, and that's sure. a, you know, it's a, a truncated version of it. But that maturity right there, yeah, is, that's the word that it's got. Yeah, on it. exactly and. and and we're, we're shooting at that in some way and yeah. so uh, um orientation towards others towards the loss so that's that's part of it um you know maybe for some people in their context you're saying yeah a mature disciple here if we're, if we're going to make a mature man he's going to be able to communicate the word of god in public he's going to preach bam okay so maybe um you know partially dependent on the the set of challenges that your culture has right absolutely if you're persecuted maturity might look a little bit different absolutely mm.
1: absolutely yeah that's i'm glad you brought that up i've actually never thought through that verse as a define, like a a completion point for here's how you know if you've made a disciple or not maturity what i'm hearing you say is maturity is there and we get to kind of we get to contextualize what the definition of that maturity looks like based on yeah
0: and in my in my way of thinking about it maturity somehow i'm going to i'm going to preacher for a second. So the, the word is, is the root word is teleos, which is maturity or completeness or whatever. And and Jesus says a form of that word on the cross. When he says it is finished, he's saying tetelestai, right? It is, it, it stands finished. It stands complete. So there's, so maturity has something to do with, you know, all of the elements necessary are there. Now, are you growing in these elements? Well, I hope so. And I hope you you never think that you've arrived. But somehow we have communicated to people what they need to operate independently without being spoon-fed, right? I use Mm. the term self-feeders a lot. Mm. So when I'm thinking, all right, so Paul's job was to make disciples, and he was laboring and striving. Well— Paul, what are you laboring and striving for? His answer is the maturity of these disciples that I'm making. So we're making them worshipers first. That's evangelism, conversion, right? We're we're making them mature. I would say self-feeders. They're able to operate. um, They're they're able to to take responsibility for their own spiritual flourishing in Christ without without needing Pastor Dustin to hold their hand the whole time, right? Something like that. Maybe they're able to reproduce because that's what disciples do. So that, that cluster of ideas there, if if I'm hearing you right, you're saying we all got to basically answer that for ourselves to a certain
1: degree. Well, as even as you're talking, I'm thinking why did the Holy Spirit allow Paul to leave that word blank? Why did he not require Paul to oh. go into more depth? Why not why not give a clear biblical definition explicitly stated? in one of, you know, in one of the epistles because it, so you're saying, because it must be individualized. I'm working it out as we're talking right now. Maybe it, maybe it has to be individualized. Maybe it's okay. If there's, uh, some variants, which would make a lot of sense because I say this
0: all the time that like when you, when you're trying to figure out, I mean, usually when I'm talking to pastors, right, if you're trying to figure out how to run a church, then we go to the new Testament and the new Testament says some stuff, but honestly, not much right right and so we have it's not going to give you a blueprint yeah we have a ton of decisions we got to make and we have a ton of um freedom like the fences are tall and they're firm but the playground in between the fences is
1: huge Uh you know Uh and so
0: maybe it's just that maybe that concept just applies to disciple making in general interesting
1: Oh, huh. wow. We're arriving at something right now. Yeah, man. Let's go start a church, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, you got to move to Tri-Cities. Though. I can't leave these people. I love them, man. Hey, I, I, one, it was one thing that I, I wanted to uh, just connect on this because you asked a question about Fire the away, difficulties bro. of making disciples. And I, I want to just connect the benefits of making disciples because I think there are entire avenues of the kingdom of God that the majority of our of, of Christians never get to explore because they never get to wander beyond the uh the the self-leadership sort of place which a lot of people are very concerned with self-leadership very concerned with their, their own spirituality and they should be it mm-hmm. matters right you have to guard your heart you must guard your heart yeah you should pray for yourself a lot as you a disciple, should, yeah right? absolutely <laughs> but there's uh there's you can miss out on entire avenues of what god is doing and and one of them is just this like core understanding that comes from just comes from learning theory which is when you teach other people how to do something you learn how to do that thing better preachers know this i mean we we get up in the pulpit and it feels like we're preaching to ourselves yeah. a lot right it does it not like sometimes you're like am i I'm being changed by this. If nobody else was changed, I know I'm being changed. Well, yeah, and also, I'm preaching stuff that I may not have learned at all if I didn't have to go and preach it. Exactly. Right? You must. So there was a study that was done, engineers at Stanford, engineers at Vanderbilt teamed up together, and they created um, an AI, an artificial intelligence, they created a bot, a personal bot bot. And what this bot did was it, it simulated a learning mind. So then they deployed this software to this elementary school somewhere in the Midwest. And every student in this elementary school was given a computer, personal computer with this software of this bot downloaded to this computer. So the students would take geography class and then Uh, At the end of geography class, they would leave the classroom and go to the desktop computer and they would have to reteach everything that they just learned in geography to the simulating mind. Whoa. And test scores skyrocketed at the elementary because, I mean, embedded in psychology is this, that when we teach others, we learn better. So, I mean, we tell our congregation, if you want to go deeper in Christ there's a really simple way: start teaching others how to follow yeah. Jesus. You will know Him differently.
0: And it's an old adage; it's hundreds of years old, at least. Right? The best way to learn is to teach. But now we got—we're at a time where we've got data to go. By the way, when you started explaining that with the AI and the elementary school kids, that, no, I, I thought that was getting really creepy. Did you know where we're, Yeah, had no, no idea where I had no, no idea where he's going. was going. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm, I'm hearing Orwell, and it's like time to, uh, you know, like no, yeah, time it, to start hoarding food. What's going on here? But that, that's an incredible point that it's—it's it's not even age specific right? Like it's, it's true of
1: humanity from childhood to maturity. So I think so many Christians, the the next level of depth with Christ is making disciples. You will understand him differently was because what it takes to clarify what you believe about him in such a way that when you say it to another person, their head doesn't go sideways and go, what do you mean? I don't understand that. That's that. I mean, that reprocessing and re I mean, just working through that over and over—it's meditation. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is meditating on the law and the works of Christ inside of your own heart and your own, your own mind, and uh, and and, it, and when it gets. Put out there. I mean, it's beneficial not just for the person, it's not always just sacrifice. It is just, it is sacrificial, but you will come to know Christ in a brand new way and you will take after his likeness and the fact that he made disciples. And I think for so many of us, um, for years of our lives, when we are not making disciples, we're missing out on that kindredness to Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that this is what he spent those final three years of his life doing was this exact thing. Um, And even the
0: first 30. In a sense, he was discipling himself. Right? He he learned obedience, sure. which is an amazing statement sure. for, for me to hear. What is that? Hebrews two. He in these things he learned obedience, never by trial and error. He never disobeyed. Right. But he spent thirty years being
1: a disciple of the Father, doing only what the Father told him to do. Period. And yep. then he went and passed it on to others. Yep, it's true. It's true. There was one other study that Time Magazine did. They they published uh, research that showed that on average, the oldest child in the family is the is the most intelligent. Highest IQ is the oldest child in the family. I'm never letting my son listen to this episode. Don't tell him. But, uh, But it's because consciously or subconsciously, they're always modeling to the younger siblings what it feels like to live in the family. They're wow. always, they're always teaching at every moment they're teaching. And so I don't know how that works. Cause my older brother's smarter than me. My younger brother's also smarter than me. So it didn't really, the birth order thing didn't work out. For Maybe me, you're so. just an anomaly where you're just kind of dumb. I, yeah, I, just, <laughs> I just didn't get the gene. <laughs> right. I just right. didn't get it.
0: So I, I was talking to a pastor uh, once that, you know, he, he's got, he's got an old dying church. Right. And the question was, how do you, how do you get these guys doing something? I mean, I, I'd, he's like, I'd settle for anything right but they show up they get their nice little sermon they want to pinch the pastor's cheeks and then they'll go home and whatever right so he said he, he was he was looking and he's kind of a guy that was isolated didn't have a lot of you know community or resources or whatever and he said so I started reading books I read it, I, I was reading books on how do you handle a church full of mature disciples because he, he was totally right about this that a church is designed like the, the bride of Christ is designed to have problems that new believers cause Right, so you're supposed to have new blood. You're supposed to have, and that's why oh. churches that, that don't engage in evangelism or missions or whatever they get ingrown and unhealthy, and they just kind of like rot and they die. Because when you don't have those those problems that new believers cause, yeah. then you fight about whatever's there. But when Satan's attacking new believers, and and you know you get these weird ideas coming into the church yeah. and things yeah, like yeah. that, you have a common enemy. You can go and fight that. Well, we got biblical commands all over the place for how to do that. That's well, so he didn't have any of these problems, right? So. He said, I got nothing but mature believers. What do I do? So he starts reading books on how to disciple mature believers. And then he realized, I don't have any mature believers. Mm -hmm. And and this is to what you're saying, right? They weren't others-oriented. They were thinking about themselves, their, their biblical feeding or whatever. And he said, I was dealing with the most immature spiritual church I'd ever Mm. seen. And they were all 70 and up. That's so interesting. So he started discipling them as though they were new believers. And he started to see some fruit. Now, a lot of them were averse to change, set in their ways, whatever. But a couple of them got it. Uh And they came alive. And they started discipling their grandkids and things like that. And he was like, man, we saw life because we treated them like babies. And then we got Mm. to grow them from scratch. How healthy is that? It was beautiful
1: how healthy. Yeah, and he was just,
0: and this is a pastor that's just, you know, he's never going to get any attention. He's never going to preach at a conference. He's out in a uh, in a farm community somewhere, wow. you know, a couple hours away from here. And, you know, the hey man, the, the crown of righteousness, the uh, what is it, the unfading crown of glory from 1 Peter 5, that's going to be good
1: for him. That gets me stoked. I want to be that kind of old person too. Yeah. Like I want to be the kind of old person that doesn't just uh like get set in the ways because he was
0: about 70 also yeah and he's sitting here thinking what do i have to change how can i serve christ better you know i was just like i love
1: that heart man yeah i went to a church the other day and uh i was in the third row it wasn't my church it was a different church and i was in the third row and in the the front the row in front of me was like they were like 80 years old Mm -hmm. and the sermon series was how to read the bible and in the row in front of me these people are like taking notes yeah they're like 80 And I just remember thinking, how incredible is that? That 80, you're still learning. Like you're, you saw the humility to say, I need to relearn how to read the Bible. I don't know how many years I have left on this earth. I might go see Jesus face to face in the next couple of years. I'm still going to learn how to. I should have lost
0: my license 10 years ago. I might die (laughs) driving home from
1: church. No, it's a, it's a cool thought. Well, and so
0: the first time I ever did a basics class, you know, basics of Christianity. Right. And so we'll do that on Sunday nights. I had a guy show up who had been a Christian since before World War II and he got saved and then he shipped out a little while later. And. I was teaching him about cross-referencing. Hey, you got a Bible? You see those little letters in it? Here's what you do with that. And he comes up to me afterwards. This guy's in his 80s and he goes... I was always wondering what those little letters yeah. were for. Was that? And I said, uh, we'll, "We'll call him uh, Gary." It wasn't his real name. I said, "Gary, I want to find every pastor you've ever had and backhand and <laughs> <laughs> you know It's just like, "What are you guys doing?" Like, teach a guy how to handle this Bible, you know? But you never graduate the basics. In Philippians one, one right. other place also, Paul says it is no. Well, Peter says it. He says it is no trouble for me to remind you of the basics. Mm-hmm. Right. This is why, which is really cool for new disciple makers, because that means you don't have to be. The special forces. You sure. don't have to have seminary
1: training to go make a disciple. Teach them the basics. They need it, right? And right. you never, and you never get past the need. Yeah, that's so true. I've noticed. Um, yeah, sometimes pe- the people who are most vocal about new things are the ones who are not helping new people understand the basics. Mm. So, like, um, yeah, like I just needing more soul feeding. Over and over and over, I've recognized um, that that, that sometimes when you are making disciples, I think just that process helps you to learn how to feed yourself as well. And uh, and it's just so healthy. It's just so healthy. Um, The other thing that's really, really sweet is connecting where you are in the kingdom to the generations that have come before you. And I think without disciple making, you just miss on, you miss on church history. You miss on the story of how the gospel got from Jerusalem to Tri-Cities, Washington. Mm -hmm. And, and then you miss on the wonder of like, well, where will it go from here? And, and could it be that God really has put me on this earth to have a hand in getting it to the next place?
0: You know how how nerdy uh, I I get sometimes. I I did this project once where I went from the apostle John down to um, my dad spiritual lineage right so he drew it out yeah so john discipled polycarp and we've got his writings now polycarp discipled Irenaeus we've got his writings and this guy got discipled by Irenaeus anyway so there were a couple of big leaps where it was like and this guy wrote the book that led that guy to christ and so then you skip a couple of generations chronologically but you still got the spiritual lineage Uh. and it got down to billy graham who preached a sermon in 1968 or 69 that my dad was watching on tv at 10 years old got saved and then you know, he led my mom to Christ accidentally when they were on a date. Hilarious story. And um, so then, you know, both first-generation Christians, they get married, have me and my sister, and my sister first and then me. And then we were raised in a Christian home, and now I'm raising my kids in a Christian home, so is my sister. So we went from the Apostle John down to us, and we could
1: trace the spiritual lineage. Pretty there. incredible. Oh, yeah, 2,000 years. It's amazing. It, it puts you in a place of going, like, who who are we? Like, the in your biological family, like right now— 23 in me is like all the craze you know what that is yeah, like yeah. you draw your blood and they tell you like where you come from right. and like like that for the church <laughs> that's the idea like that sort of yeah. thing so that you know like when you see polycarp on your lineage yeah you go okay i got some stuff to do and then you read the story about how he was martyred yes dude i had this thought the other day was he in the in the coliseum yeah He's, yeah
0: in in smyrna right so yeah. he was the he was the pastor of the church in smyrna right and he gets he for everybody else you, you've clearly heard this story you, For everybody else, he gets put on trial and the governor of the region or whatever. He says, old man, everybody likes you. We don't want to kill you. All you got to say is, Caesar is, or he said, all you got to say is away with the atheists because Christians were called atheists, ironically, because they didn't believe in the, the, um, you know, the... The, Yeah, polytheism, yeah. Yeah, the polytheism. What am I thinking of? The pan... Uh, The Pantheon. Pantheon, Yeah, Yeah, they didn't believe in the Pantheon, so they were called atheists. They said, Old man, listen, we'll let you go and you can die in dignity if you just say away with the atheists. He points back at the governor and he points at the crowd and he says, Away with the atheists. God has been good to me these 80 and four years. How can I turn my back on him now? (laughs) He said, You guys get out of (laughs) here, right? Yeah. And so then he dies, right? Then I'm, I'm reading that story and then I thought, wait a second. Smyrna, that's in Revelation. So I go to Revelation, uh, I think it's in chapter 2 or is it chapter 3? It's one of those. And and he says, um, uh, do not fear what you are about to suffer. You're going to suffer a little while, you know. And then here's the reward that Jesus is going to give you. And Polycarp was a pastor and his people were watching that. You know what I mean? How do you think they felt after that? Like probably a little scared, very bummed, and so motivated oh, to yeah. go and carry on his work because how could they let him down at that point after what he just went through?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, functionally, he drops the torch on the ground when he is martyred and the people around him have to go, will we pick that torch up and run with it or are we going to let it... St-? Like, what are we going to do with that now? You watch your pastor go down. You watch a, fr- a dear friend go down. You watch... I mean, that's what we, we miss out on those stories, I think, here in the West of like watching, who who said like the blood of the martyrs is the seed for the church. Um, We miss out on some of that. But I do think that there's something around that um, persecution, which looping back to the beginning of our conversation, it won't be long in, in our country before, I don't want like, maybe it's not martyrdom to the same degree but it won't be long until like psychologically it's it's very difficult to be a christian yeah I
0: sure think. we're at the point of resistance and pressure we may not be at the point of what we would call
1: persecution but we got sniffs of it the last couple of years right right and and that's gonna do something i think to the church i think yep. it's gonna do something to church um, i think covid was the best thing that ever
0: happened to the american church by a lot of metrics not in every way but in a lot of ways i think it was like
1: thank god have you talked about this on the podcast or any? I don't know. I don't think so. Tell me. Tell me one way you think that it's it's been good for the church. Um, it
0: clarified. It, it it clarified whose mission was what, or what mission was was whose. However you want to say that. In other words, I think there's a squishy middle a lot of times where you've got people who are you've got people in any given church congregation or worship gathering that are all in. And then you've got people that really aren't. And they know they're not really Christians, but they're there because their wife drags them to church or whatever, right? Or their, their dad drags them to church. But they're not really Christians. And then you've got this squishy middle that think that they're Christians, but that's only because the conditions are right for them to live in such a way. And I call that the squishy middle. And when that evaporates... That's that clarity is really, really good for the gospel. Yeah. And
1: I think we got to see that a lot. There's a lot of fall off. Yeah. But there's a remnant. Yeah. And the fall means. off,
0: th- these are people that weren't genuine in the first place. So there's, a- there's actually no loss to the kingdom of God. We actually, um, our-, our discipleship mm-hmm. pastor at the time, Kevin, uh, he-, he moved away. And then, you know, we've got Ben now. So you'll meet Ben at some point. But um, so as I quote our discipleship pastor, I want to be careful to give credit to the right person here. So we, w- we were sitting there praying years ago and we said, God, just, would you please just close down a third of the churches in the Tri Cities, right? And we said, because there, there are so many, because people move, this area is a rapidly growing area, and they go look for churches, and they find just just theological crap mm. that's hidden underneath a cross, right? Mm. And, and it's like, can we just clear the slate? So we said, let's start with the ones with the lesbian pastors that don't take the Bible seriously anyway. Let's start with the ones that treat the Bible like good advice rather than good news, and they're not really they're not really disciples. Just shut them down. And we knew. That, that was going to take some kind of earth shattering event. We figured it was going to be the, the revoking of our tax exempt status to say you or something. You're COVID into effect. Yeah, I, just- I think it was all our fault. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> what I figured was going to happen was that the Governor Inslee at some point was going to say, you know, hey, no more no more nonprofit status. Yeah. Right. Boom. And I think that would do it in a lot of cases. It's, that would shut coming. a lot of places down. Yeah, That's coming. But I'm not worried about the genuine churches. Right. They'll be fine. And then in those in those unhealthy churches, or those, those, let's call them fake churches, then the people who are actually believers there, the Holy Spirit's going to take care of them, and they'll go to places where they're being discipled, and then those bodies will be stronger. And I'm like, I see no downside here, right? Mm-hmm. So we're praying like that, and then COVID hits, and me and Kevin are looking at each other like, oh my gosh, Did dude. And he do said, this? yes.
1: <laughs> Did we do this? <laughs>
0: like, well, no, yeah, and it wasn't like, you know, like, yeah, we prayed it, and so God said okay. It was just like, dude, I, I think he was, I think he's actually, he had us, seeing things the same way he was. And he's giving a shakeup that years ago we said was good. So we better not complain about it now, right? This is an opportunity if we're right. And so anyway, some, there's a lot more down that rabbit trail. But I think, I think that, that pressure is, is good for the church.
1: I agree. It doesn't always have a net benefit on each uh, you know, local congregation. But Christ is faith. I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, the, the word, I think you were searching for this word earlier. The word is communitas. It's what happens to community when there is a a dangerous agent that gets involved. So that gelling that happens. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So you see, when people come back from war, they become brothers in arms or sisters in arms when they come back from war. Happens in the church too in persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, when danger is introduced as an element into the system, um, things get purified. Yep. Um, things get solidified. Um, people pick up responsibility, and Christ becomes exalted. Because you recognize that he is your life. Like, yeah, he is
0: your life. And you see that in new converts a lot. I mean, when we baptize somebody, that we've had a lot of people where it's like, hey, if you get baptized, like their mom will tell them, if you get baptized, I'm never talking to you again. Right. Yeah. Right. Because they're coming out of Mormonism or or whatever the case may be. Right. And so they get baptized anyway. And the joy on their faces, there's a noticeable difference between them and the people who are getting baptized still legit conversion but it's not costing them anything yet and it may someday and praise god for their conversion but that moment of impact is so much more joyful for the one who's who it's hurting
1: a little bit yeah
0: versus the one who's not
1: yeah yeah and the church becomes the family yeah they appreciate their
0: church a lot
1: more yep i don't have a mom anymore yeah i need you guys yeah and
0: that's romans 6 right
1: you were baptized
0: into christ yeah boom here you go so put on the new self colossians 3 It it takes on some flesh it does Chris, listen, man, I really appreciate your ministry, your, your time and investment in us on behalf of my people who are listening to this. Thanks for throwing down with us a little bit. I I think you've made some disciples today and I appreciate you, man. So thanks. Listen, guys, the world is a messed up place, but uh, you know, we got a gospel. that's perfectly suited to fix it. So have that nimble on your lips, write in your questions and uh, we'll hit them on the next. Actually, we'll hit them Ah, wrong button. We will hit them in the next season because this was the last episode of season two. So we will see y'all crazy cats on season three. Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of Grace and Truth Community in West Richland, Washington. You can find out more about us on our app, social media, or at graceandtruthcommunity.com. We love Him because He first loved us.